The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Let me begin by showing you somebody here and seeing if you know who this guy is. Does anyone know who he is? His name is uh, uh, Jim McInvale, but he's really not known by that name. He's actually known as Mattress Mac, and he's a mattress salesman in Texas. And Jim, or Mattress Mac, believed so strongly that the Houston Astros were going to win the World Series that he bet $10 million on them winning. And the craziest part of this to me is that he made this bet in May, okay? That's just when this season is getting started. And so he put 10 million of his own money at the beginning of the baseball season to say that his team was going to win the World Series. And the crazy thing was that the Astros made it into the World Series this year. And so suddenly, the eyes of the nation were on this one guy named Mattress Mac to see if his crazy bet would pay off. And it got really dicey. <laughs> After three games, the Astros were down 2-1 to one to the Phillies. And if you watch the broadcast on TV, they kept cutting to Mattress Mac. <laughs> and you could see the worried look on his face at this point. He got so close, and it looked like he was going to lose. Well, there was this, if you're a baseball fan, you already know the story. There was this amazing turnaround, and the Astros took the next three games to clinch the World Series. And Mattress Mac won a total of $75 million out of that bet. You know, it's one thing to say that you believe that your team is going to win the World Series. And it's easy to say you believe that when it costs you nothing. It's a whole other thing to bet the farm on that belief, isn't it? Like Mattress Mac did. Last week, we looked at King Herod, who despite all of his glaring character flaws, was shrewd enough to understand that this announcement that a king had been born threatened his own leadership. In other words, if Jesus is king, then how can I be king? And the only proper response was the response of the Magi, who uh, responded in a heart of worship to acknowledge that the king had been born. Well, today our focus is on John the Baptist, who also believed the good news that in Jesus a king had been born into our world. And like Mattress Mac, John bet the farm on this belief. I pointed out this verse that I'm going to read in just a moment, uh, a few months back in this message I gave on the abortion debate. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, as you may know, is Mary's cousin. And Mary is pregnant with the baby Jesus. And when they met, this baby leapt in Elizabeth's womb, and that baby was none other than John the Baptist. 
It was as if John was celebrating the birth of Jesus, even while he was still in his mother's womb. And so as John reaches adulthood, he begins his own ministry, which the prophets say is to prepare the way for Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, we find, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confession, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. There's just no way around it. John was a strange dude. I mean, he wore strange clothes, and he ate a weird diet. And he preached this uncompromising message of repentance to all. And despite all of this, the crowds came in droves into the desert to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. And his fame and his popularity grew to the point that even the religious leaders began to go into the desert to hear him. And this is what John says to them. In verses 7 to 10 of Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say, say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Are you getting a sense of the kind of guy John was? I don't think he got invited to parties much. I don't think John dealt in small talk. Ah, it's crazy, this rain we're getting this time of year, isn't it, John? You think that's crazy? Wait until it rains fire and brimstone from heaven. I mean, this is a guy that was on a mission. He was a no-nonsense kind of a guy. And look at what he says about his cousin Jesus in verses 11 to 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What John is basically saying is, my ministry is like the minor leagues compared to what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. When he comes, he will come in power and he is going to clean house in Israel. And he is going to usher an entirely new era of justice and righteousness as he judges the world and separates the wheat from the chaff. And a little after that, Jesus comes to John in order to be baptized by him, ushering in Jesus' public ministry. 
And sure enough, as Jesus starts his own ministry, he begins doing these very things that John was expecting him to do, casting out demons and healing the sick and even raising the dead. And all of these were signs that God's kingdom had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And everything that John was expecting was coming to fruition until his life suddenly takes an unexpected turn. In Luke chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, it says, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them, to them all. He locked John up in prison. So in his bold and uncompromising stance on truth, John dared to even confront the king himself, Herod. And he says, how dare you take the wife of your brother as your own wife? And as a result, he ends up in prison. We don't know how long he languished there, but it must have been long enough to cause John to doubt whether Jesus was actually who he said he was. And so we find this interesting exchange in Luke's gospel uh, as John in prison reaches out to Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 16 to 23. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sends us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At the very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And so through his powerful teaching and these miracles that he was performing, Jesus' popularity is on the rise, and yet there still was something about Jesus' ministry that caused John to doubt whether Jesus really was the Messiah. I think part of the problem was, as wonderful as it was, the things that Jesus was doing, I suspect it didn't seem quite as dramatic to John as what he was expecting. I think he was, what he was really looking for was a Messiah that would come and take no prisoners and bring about sweeping reform in all of Israel. And yeah, he was healing people here and there and doing the odd miracle, but I don't think it was all coalescing into this, this radical vision of societal transformation that John was expecting. And I think the most glaring problem was that this wicked guy Herod was still on the throne while he unjustly was rotting in prison. And I think there was a sense in which John must have been wondering, isn't Jesus supposed to be this unquenchable fire, taking down the enemies of God and making everything right? Isn't the Messiah about the judgment on this world? When is that going to take place? What is taking Jesus so long if he is the Messiah? 
I think like our brother Kevin just shared uh, so openly and honestly about his own life, there are these moments when God pulls through so dramatically for us. And yet at the same time, it's mixed with these moments where we're waiting on him, wondering if he is even listening or if he even cares. And so John begins to doubt whether Jesus truly is the Messiah and sends messengers and says, are you the one? Are you really the one that I have waited for and I've been preaching about all my life? Miguel de Unamuno says this, Those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in their heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. In other words, what he's saying is, it's easy to believe in something if it costs you nothing. It's not until you really have skin in the game that your faith is tested. And John's faith was being tested as he languished in prison with no hope of rescue. I think it's also not until we need something from God, until we need him to pull through for us in some way, that we really wrestle with these issues of faith, of these questions of what can I really expect from God? What can I ask of him? And I think our doubts about God tend to center around a couple questions. God, why are you silent? Why do you hide your face? In other words, are you really listening to my prayers? Can I, what can I really expect from you? What can I ask of you? Do you really care? And I think in that struggle, there is this tempting logic to think this. It would be a lot easier to trust in you, God, if you just made yourself more visible to me. If I didn't feel like I was guessing to know if you really are out there and really care. And frankly, if you would just demonstrate more power in my life, if I could just feel you more in my life, that you are present there doing stuff, then it would sure make this journey a lot easier and make my faith easier. And I think that's the logic that a lot of us have. Why are you so shy, God? Why so hidden from me? But what is so fascinating is that when you look through the stories of the Bible, what you discover is that there is story after story that argues that the exact opposite is true. Of many moments when God has revealed himself so powerfully to people, and yet that did not result in greater faith in the hearts of people. I think one of the greatest demonstrations of God's presence and power was when he came upon this mount called Mount Sinai. And he would come to this mountain in glory. And the account in Exodus 19 is just amazing. He comes in this billowing smoke with lightning and thunder. And then it says the whole mountain lit up on the top so that it looked like it was a furnace on fire. And it was just the glory of God coming. And then it says the entire mountain shook like an earthquake. And it says that the people were terrified at this demonstration of God's presence in their midst. And you think, it doesn't get any more spectacular than that when God desire, decides to show up somewhere. And you would think, if I had that, if I had that, <laughs> I would worship God for the rest of my life 
with fear and trembling. And yet right after God does that, it's long be- not in- at the very foot of that mountain when Moses is on top meeting with God that the Israelites make this golden calf, this idol, this false god. And they begin to worship it and saying, this is the God that saved us and rescued us out of Egypt, out of slavery. You could make the argument, this is, well, that's Mount Sinai. That's God in terror, you know. I mean, who wants to meet a God like that, right? It, it sure can put the fear of God in you, but it's not exactly an inviting picture of God that invites and welcomes fellowship and relationship with him. Well, God did something totally opposite. And in the most intimate and personal way imaginable, he came to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And yet here was the thing. Even Jesus was rejected by those he encountered. As it says in John 1.1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so it seemed like no matter what Jesus did to try to show that he was God, they always had an answer. They always could refute what they saw. So here is Jesus casting out demons to show that the kingdom of God has come and God had come to deliver his people and show kindness to them. And yet they took even that sign and they twisted it. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 32 to 34, it says, While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So right there in the face of this miracle of a demon being cast out of this person, they say, Well, it's just because this guy is demonic himself. Look at how the crowd reacted when this audible voice comes from heaven to validate and authenticate that Jesus is his son. And it says in John chapter 12, verse 27 to 29, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it glorify it again. The crowd was there and heard it said it was had, and, and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So they've, they've just witnessed this miracle of an audible voice from heaven. And immediately in the aftermath of witnessing that miracle, the crowd is arguing with each other, I, I think it was thunder. I don't know. You think that was the voice of God? I'm not sure. This is just a small sampling of the way that God has revealed himself in the pages of the Bible, whether through these revelations, audible voice, or even these miracles and signs. And what is so fascinating about it is that in almost all of these cases, it never actually translates into faith of the people really going, oh, I was so stupid. What was I thinking? Let me bow down and worship God. I think Jesus understood the limitation of miracles. 
and even the negative impact that miracles could play in nurturing genuine faith in us. And so when you read the gospel stories, often he downplays the miracles that he does. And in fact, regularly, he tells people, don't tell anybody what I have just done. He keeps it a secret. Philip Yancey writes in Disappointment with God, with remarkable consistency, the Bible's accounts show that miracles, dramatic, show-stopping miracles like many of us still long for, simply do not foster deep faith. For proof, we need look no further than the transfiguration when Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. To the disciples' astonishment, two long-dead giants of Jewish history, Moses and Elijah, appeared in a cloud with them. God spoke audibly. It was too much to take. The disciples fell down terrified. Yet what effect did this stupendous event have on Jesus' three closest friends, Peter, James, and John? Did it permanently silence their questions and fill them with faith? A few weeks later, when Jesus needed them most, they all forsook him. You see, if the goal of miracles is to do nothing more than to prove the existence of God, then maybe miracles would be enough. But the true goal of faith is not to prove the existence of God, but to nurture a relationship of love and trust in Him. That is God's objective in His relationship with us. And so getting whatever we want from Him in prayer or being delivered from every struggle that we're going through in life that does not achieve the goal that God desires in us, which is not only to prove that he exists, but to develop a heart of trust in us. It made me think of the miracles that I had witnessed in my life. And the truth is, I don't really share these things that often with people anymore because I can immediately read the eyes of people that is always this kind of, Ah, really? Like, okay, I, I bet you if I could talk to someone who was there, they may say Steve's kind of embellishing things a bit. And so I, I hesitate to even share these stories. But honest to God, I have seen some things that I cannot explain with science. I mean, I, just one of these stories is when I was working in the intensive care unit and there was a guy who tried to commit him suicide by putting a hose from his exhaust pipe in his garage and his car into his window and tried to kill himself with carbon monoxide poisoning. And EMS found him unconscious. They don't know how long. And they brought him to our hospital. And for over a week, he was there in a vegetative coma. Medically speaking, he was in what was called a decerebrate posture, which showed massive brain damage. We put him through the hyperbaric uh, treatments, and we did everything known to medical science. And by the end of that week, the intensivist said, there's nothing more we could do. And then sadly, this is what he said, it would have been better if he succeeded. Because for the rest of his life, he's going to be a burden to his parents as a basically a comatose person who's going to live out the rest of his life in a nursing home. And we were talking about putting a, a feeding tube in his stomach just so he wouldn't die. And that day, I remember, I don't know what happened over me, but I was filled with such overwhelming sense of grief. And I laid hands on this guy and I prayed and said, God, I don't know what I'm even saying here, but if there is a way, heal this guy. 
And I prayed that prayer. And I went to rounds the next morning. And the intensivist was really excited. And he said, I went to this guy at like 6 a.m. And I just do my neuro check every morning. And my routine is just to shake the guy and go, you know, like, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, can you hear me? And he said, the guy opened his eyes, looked straight at me and goes, yeah, I can hear you fine. And it wasn't just this gradual recovery. The, literally, the guy was walking around eating that very next morning. And he was discharged out of the hospital with no lasting neurological deficit. And I have other stories that I can share with you like this. And it's kind of like, wow, you know, like, I wish I saw that. But here is the thing that I had to realize, too. How much do these things that I have actually experienced even help me in my present walk with God? And if I'm really honest, not that much. It's actually scary how quickly those things fade into the background. What I realized is that for me, what matters is just what, are you, what have you done for me lately, God, right? That's actually what really matters. Look at how Jesus responds to John and his struggles. Luke 7, 22 to 23, we already read it. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now it looks like Jesus himself is relying on miracles, doesn't it? As a way to strengthen John's wavering faith. He says, look at all the miracles I'm doing, believe. But I think what cannot be missed in what Jesus is trying to communicate to John is this. What Jesus is basically saying is that these are signs that authenticate the fact that I am the Messiah. Because the truth is not every sick person was healed even in the days of Jesus. Not every dead person was raised back to life. Jesus may have fed the crowds a couple of times, but he did not rescue the poor out of their poverty generally speaking. But I think what Jesus is basically telling John is, these are the signs that you have been looking for. And what I think Jesus is ultimately saying is that in me, the Messiah, what it declares is that God is with us and God is for us. That is ultimately the comforting message to John. I am who you think I am. Because the truth is, John would never make it out of prison. He would be killed there. And yet, Jesus could tell him, let this knowledge that I am the Messiah strengthen you and give you hope in all circumstances. Studying the Bible to see what it had to say about this theme of disappointment with God, uh, Philip Yancey made this interesting observation. I could not help noticing an abrupt mood shift in the Bible around the book of Acts. If you scour the rest of the New Testament, you will find none of the outrage of Job, nor the despair of Ecclesiastes, nor the anguish of lamentations. Clearly, the writers of the New Testament were convinced that Jesus had changed the universe 
forever. I never really had thought about that until I read this in Yancey's book. But here's the problem. Is that even as these guys like Paul are writing these New Testament letters, evil tyrants are still ruling the world. There is still disease and sickness and death. There is poverty and slavery and abuse. And in fact, Christians in that very moment are being imprisoned and tortured and put to death for their faith. And yet, everything changed after Jesus when they realized that he was the Messiah. And it was this belief that even though the circumstances around us has not changed, in Jesus we really realize that God is with me and God is for me. And in that faith, I can go through anything in this life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6-9, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what Peter is saying is this. What God is most interested in you is to grow a faith that could weather all seasons. Not to make your life easy or comfortable, or to give you everything that you want, but to make in you the image of Christ that will shine to his glory. And that involves suffering. Think about these two statements. I have shown you them before. God is good, and life is good. And what I'm saying, especially to the church in America, is that I think these two statements are inseparable from one another in terms of our faith. What I mean is this. We don't really question that God is good so long as life is good. In other words, in good times, our belief that God is good is never actually tested. It's not until life isn't so good for you that you are forced to wrestle with what you truly mean when you say God is good. I would argue this, that much of the journey of faith is the ability to say that God is good and that he is for you, even in the face of trials and suffering. Let me just close with this. John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, tells the story of this man named Christian who's on this long journey to the celestial city of God. And Christian overcomes many challenges and obstacles, and it looks like he's just about made it to the finish line. And in the distance, he can see the celestial city. And he has this travel companion that's named Hopeful. And together, Hopeful and Christian see the city. 
But the problem is between them and the city is this great river they have to cross. And as the two enter the river, they discover that it is very deep and they begin to sink. And Christian cries out to Hopeful, the sorrows of death have compassed me, about me. And this is how Hopeful replies to Christian. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but they are sent to test you to see whether you will recall that goodness which up to now you have received from him. And if you will live upon him in your distresses, be cheerful. Jesus Christ makes you whole. Let's pray.